Episode 3, still inside Carnegie Hall, 20th of January 1968. Producer Harold Leventhal later claimed that Bob Dylan approached him regarding a Guthrie commemorative concert. The day Woody died, he called up and said, Whatever you plan, I'd like to be there. And he was. $3.50 seats for the matinee and evening celebrations of someone who many beyond the folk scene presumed long dead sold out within an hour. The announcement that Dylan had agreed to take part was an obvious incentive for younger ticket holders. For this, if no other reason, it's more likely the commercially savvy Leventhal approached Dylan rather than the other way round. Born and raised in New York's toughest boroughs, Harold Leventhal was a tough but thoroughly decent businessman. His progressive ideals earning him universal admiration and respect. He dedicated much of his life to defending and promoting Woody Guthrie and the archives in Tulsa are a testimony to his passion, commitment and organisational ability. Leventhal's well-established credentials as a left-leaning manager and concert promoter saw his appointment in the mid-50s as the guardian of the Guthrie family's assets, not least Woody's literary and songwrites. Encouraged by Marjorie Guthrie, Harold Leventhal was the inspiration and the driving force behind the Carnegie Hall concerts. He'd helped organise the 1956 benefit and nine years later had staged the Woody Guthrie Hootenanny at Town Hall. Leventhal had screened film footage of Guthrie at the first concert. Now he had the idea to have repeat images of Guthrie's life and times projected onto a backcloth throughout each show. The same slides were later used in LA, but complemented by a purpose-built stage set based on Woody's drawings and cartoons. For Leventhal, Carnegie Hall was the obvious location in which to celebrate the life of Woody Guthrie. In the 1930s and 1940s, both President Roosevelt and the First Lady, Eleanor Roosevelt, had travelled there to address various political gatherings. Notwithstanding its occasional use by opponents of the New Deal and advocates of isolationism, Carnegie Hall had acquired a symbolic importance for New York's liberals and radicals. Starting in 1938 with From Spirituals to Swing, a history of black music sponsored by the communist magazine New Masses, the theatre management had actively encouraged integrated audiences. Unsurprisingly, right-wing parties and organisations, including the demonstrably fascist German Bund, preferred Madison Square Garden for their rallies. At the height of FDR's 1944 presidential campaign, New Jersey Democrats convinced the young Frank Sinatra to go on stage at the Carnegie and challenge Bing Crosby's endorsement of the Republican Party candidate, New York State Governor and high-profile Mafia prosecutor Thomas Dewey. Meanwhile, up in New England, Woody Guthrie was busy singing campaign songs in less grandiose settings. Carnegie Hall looked very different in January 1968, as today a 64 skyscraper towers over the original Baroque-styled venue. Yet the large and imposing concert hall, built for symphony orchestras, not rock bands or folk groups, still oozes gravitas. In the late 60s, an especially raucous Rolling Stones gig had seen the Carnegie Hall's initial flirtation with pop music end abruptly. 
The idea of a Woody Guthrie benefit surely left Carnegie Hall's managers thinking long and hard before they agreed to seriously minded if slightly scruffy lefties from the Lower West Side celebrate their late hero. Yet several of those scheduled to perform had previously played at the venue. Most notably Pete Seeger, lead singer on the best-selling LP The Weavers at Carnegie Hall, recorded on Christmas Eve 1955. Bob Dylan had also sung at Carnegie Hall, in an upstairs concert room on the 4th of November 1961 and in the main auditorium in October 1965. The latter gig with the Hawks may have been a factor in the post-Stones ban on loud music. Late in life, Harold Leventhal recalled 20th of January 1968 as a very emotional event. People cried throughout the evening and presumably the afternoon. Yes, Woody had passed away, but one thing was certain, we would never forget him. At the end of both shows, Leventhal brought Marjorie Guthrie and her daughter Nora out on stage to join the cast. Tom Paxton was stunned by the way in which the place went nuts. Not many accountants from the east side could earn themselves a standing ovation like Harold Leventhal did, especially twice in one day. At least one member of the audience at Carnegie Hall sat fixed in his seat. In the early 1960s, Phil Oakes had been a protest singer mentioned in the same breath as Bob Dylan. Beyond the folk cognoscenti, he was best known as the writer of Joan Byers' top ten hit, There But For Fortune. Unlike Dylan, Oakes had revelled in the notion that his politically charged songs rendered him a spokesman for his generation. 1964 saw the release of Another Side of Bob Dylan and of Oak's debut album, All the News That's Fit to Sing. One record signalled a deliberate shift from the political to the personal, while the other was a witty, if relentless, social commentary on the woes of the nation. Civil rights, chronic inequality and Cold War confrontation gave Oakes the material and the motivation to record three powerful and well-received albums for Electra. The political engagement remained as raw as ever, but in the mid-60s Oakes switched labels, at which point he lost his way. By 1968 his career had stalled, ironically at the very moment when events at home and abroad cried out for protest songs, carrying the weight of anthems made famous via All the News That's Fit to Sing and its successor I Ain't Marching Anymore. Insistent that he alone of his generation had kept the faith, Phil Oakes was too intelligent not to know his moment had passed. Was it envy which fuelled hostility towards his one-time coffeehouse comrade? The two men shared a painful, for Oakes, and perplexing relationship until Oakes all but accused the chart-topping Dylan of having sold out to a spurious rock star lifestyle. The two men famously quarrelled in the back of a car. Oakes found himself dumped into a stream of Manhattan traffic, his dismissal accompanied by the charge, You're not a folk singer, you're just a journalist. Oakes displayed an ambivalent attitude towards Dylan, performing a sneering parody of him on stage. Positively not 4th Street. While at the same time remaining fascinated by whatever his old sparring partner was up to. In 1966, Oakes pronounced publicly that Dylan was heading for a fall, and then curiously was proved right. 
Demoralised and depressed, Oakes had only a vague knowledge of Dylan's music making after he fell off his motorbike and withdrew from public life. Drawn by the chance to see Dylan's latest incarnation firsthand, Oakes acquired a ticket for one of the Carnegie Hall concerts. This was despite his undisguised fury over being ignored by Harold Leventhal. Leventhal knew Phil Oakes well and was familiar with his work, not least the plangent tribute to Guthrie, Bound for Glory. Seen by many as the outstanding track on all the news that's fit to sing, Bound for Glory was as familiar to folk fans as Bob Dylan's Song to Woody. It was certainly better known than Last Thoughts on Woody Guthrie, a torrent of ver libre which Dylan performed only once. If you weren't in New York at Town Hall on the 13th of April 1963, then you had to wait nearly 30 years before a recording of the recitation was finally released. Oakes probably was in the Town Hall audience that night, his literary antennae picking up the poem's indebtedness to the Beats, Baudelaire and James Baldwin. Impressed but never in awe, Oakes matched the density of Dylan's homage in just five verses and a chorus. Bound for Glory was in essence a ballad, a stripped-down biography and the spirit of its subject. A companion song from Oakes' debut album, The Power and the Glory, was an unashamed attempt to match the vision and grandeur of This Land is Your Land, and soon covered by Pete Seeger, who recognised the parallels with Guthrie's own alternative anthem. On the basis of these two songs alone, Oakes believed he should have been on stage at Carnegie Hall. Instead, he found himself having to watch Richie Havens, at that time a little-known artist and with no obvious connection to Woody Guthrie. Oakes would have been even angrier had he known that his former manager Albert Grossman insisted Leventhal invite Havens to play. This was the price of having Bob Dylan close the first half of the show. Ironically, relations between Grossman and his biggest star had sunk so low that backstage at Carnegie Hall they ignored each other. A further irony was the setting. Upstairs from the main auditorium was the Carnegie Chapter Hall, where back in November 1961, Grossman had spectacularly failed to orchestrate his young charges breakout appearance. Levon Helm sensed bad blood between the two men, while at the same time welcoming Grossman's readiness to gamble on the Hawks' imminent regeneration. Just as Bob was leaving Albert's stable, we were arriving. Leverage for Grossman was Leventhal's own manoeuvrings to secure his clients a place on the bill. Judy Collins was an obvious link between the older singer centred on Pete Seeger and the younger songwriters she showcased on her early albums for Electra. And unlike Havens, Collins was a close friend of the Guthrie family. Recalling the occasion some years later, an embittered Phil Oakes insisted that Woody Guthrie would not have been invited to the Woody Guthrie concert. As evidence, Oakes cited Leventhal, reversing an initial decision to include Guthrie's most famous devotee. Rambling Jack Elliott learnt of his omission only the day before the event. Despite having driven thousands of miles to take part, Elliot's sole demand was two seats in the auditorium, his good humour ensuring an invitation to play at the California concert 30 months later.
Elliot had been born in Brooklyn, the son of a Jewish GP. From the early 50s, Elliot reinvented himself as Ramblin' Jack, a singing cowboy devoted to Woody Guthrie. He purported to be his ailing hero's amanuensis, but too often he wasn't taken seriously. His credentials as a folk singer were respected more in Europe than in his home country. Only in 2012, amid the flurry of books and articles generated by Guthrie's centenary, was Elliot properly recognised as the first true believer and a lifelong keeper of the flame. Back in 1961, it was Ramblin' Jack who'd offered the young Robert Zimmerman a direct link to his bed-bound hero, and the two men's paths frequently crossed until the day Elliot's one-time disciple dropped him from the Rolling Thunder Review. By way of recompense, in Chronicles, Dylan acknowledged how much he owed to rambling Jack Elliot's tutelage at the start of his career. Dylan readily conceded that when in Minneapolis he first heard Elliot's impressive covers of Guthrie standards, it was a shock. A couple of albums had been recorded live in England and they made a deep impression upon the embryonic Bob Dylan. He was an unlikely and unexpected role model. Until his Minnesota mentor, John Pankaki, called him out, Dylan switched from imitating Guthrie to imitating Ramblin' Jack. At the time, and in the years that followed, Ramblin' Jack empathised with Phil Oakes, embittered by his exclusion from the Guthrie concerts. Oakes was already a heavy drinker, and in 1976 he killed himself, almost certainly as a consequence of an undiagnosed bipolar condition. Drawing perhaps on his own experience with the Rolling Thunder Review, Elliot saw Oakes as someone whose career had been blighted by Dylan's antipathy. Because Bob is a very competitive person. If anybody seems to be a threat to Bob, he's going to get rid of him. He's just that way. Oakes waited forlornly for an invitation to join the Rolling Thunder Review when it reconvened in January 1976. The call never came and within three months he was dead. Dylan was shattered by the news of Oakes's suicide, presumably racked with guilt over the contempt he too often displayed towards a flawed and fragile songwriter forced to acknowledge his lesser talent. Tom Paxton shared Elliot's regret that Phil Oakes was not invited to perform, but his own relationship with Dylan was very different. The two men first met in 1961 and a year or so later, Dylan asked Paxton to join him on a visit to Brooklyn State Hospital. The older man declined on the grounds that both he and his hero would find the meeting stressful. Yet Paxton had more in common with Guthrie than Bob Dylan. He was himself an Oakey, born at the height of the Depression, less than 30 miles from Okamar, Guthrie's hometown. His CV included a college degree, a spell in the army, an arrival in Greenwich Village as a fully formed songwriter and a raft of radio-friendly compositions. Paxson's frequently covered songs provided him with a comfortable lifestyle, while never compromising his reputation as a no-frills, politically engaged folk singer. Almost revelling in his unfashionable appearance, his only concession to the hippie zeitgeist, a slightly drooping moustache, the polo neck Paxton was the least likely person to be intimidated by Bob Dylan. At the start of the 60s, Tom Paxton had listened to and played alongside Dylan numerous times. In London a few years later, he'd witnessed Dylan's appalling amphetamine fuelled behaviour 
as captured on the Don't Look Back documentary. After that, Paxton kept his distance, thus he'd never seen Bob Dylan perform with the Hawks and in January 1968 had no idea what to expect. Yet for anyone too young to have witnessed the self-styled Woody Guthrie jukebox aping his hero in Greenwich Village, this was a wholly novel experience. Furthermore, no faithful cover of a Guthrie composition had ever appeared on a Dylan album. As it transpired, a further 20 years would pass before a solitary studio recording, the aforementioned Pretty Boy Floyd, quietly saw the light of day. Perhaps, as Neil Corcoran suggested, out of a combination of tact and self-preservation. There was a further novelty given the obscurity of Dylan and the Crackers' middle number, Dear Mrs Roosevelt. Here was an unrecorded song familiar only to Marjorie Guthrie and old comrades like Pete Seeger and Will Gear. Judging by the setlist for the only complete recording of Woody Guthrie in concert, the song enjoyed a short shelf life. One night in 1949, the audience at Fold Hall in Newark, New Jersey, heard all the old favourites. But dear Mrs Roosevelt wasn't one of them. This paean to a president only survived because the complete lyrics and musical notation could be found in Seeger's Labour of Love, the endearingly and honestly named The Nearly Complete Collection of Woody Guthrie Folk Songs. If the other two songs in the set were compatible with the frontier music emerging from the basement of Big Pink the previous summer, why should Dear Mrs Roosevelt be any different? It wasn't, and yet there was one crucial difference. As we'll see in episode 10, the audience did not hear Dear Mrs Roosevelt in its entirety because Dylan chose to drop four verses. Did he do so because the song would have been too long or because the lyrics were politically sensitive or both? Presumably Dylan discovered the song in Seeger's 1963 compendium. What was it that attracted him to that particular song? There's always the possibility that Dylan already knew of its existence, but this is unlikely. Dylan had paid his respects at the Guthrie home in Queens, but it was a brief visit. Coffee and condolences offered scant opportunity for him to reacquaint himself with the vast array of writings and drawings which in due course would form today's archives in Tulsa. The family had recently moved from 85th Street on Howard Beach, the shabby Cape Cod-style house which Dylan had visited in the early 60s. Not that inspection of Guthrie's writings at that time had been anything but cursory. In Chronicles, Dylan recalled the time he went to see Guthrie at Greystone Hospital in New Jersey and was urged to take a look at the papers stored in the basement of the family home. He told me if I wanted any of them to go and see Margie, his wife, explain why I was there. She'd unpack them for me. He duly did so, but unlike Robert Shelton's archive sampling in the basement sometime later, visiting Marjorie proved a miserable experience with no tangible outcome. There seems a consensus among Guthrie's biographers that his widow and his daughter Nora were never especially fond of Dylan. However, the folk singer and author Daniel Mark Epstein gained a very different impression when he talked to Nora Guthrie. The family felt that the earnest young man from Minnesota was sincere in wanting to connect with his hero, but unconvincing to the point of offensive when he affected to look and sound like Woody on stage. There was, however, sufficient goodwill on both sides that, whatever the erstwhile folk singer got up to later in the decade, they kept in touch. 
When Dylan and the band sold out Madison Square Garden in January 1974, front row tickets were reserved for Marjorie and Nora. If there had been any antipathy back in the day, then it clearly didn't extend to Woody's son. Reconnecting with Dylan at Carnegie Hall in January 1968, Guthrie felt the same as he did when they first met in January 1961. I just liked the guy because I thought he wrote really cool songs and he rode a motorcycle and he had a good band. So I was an admirer. But it was not an idol worship kind of relationship. It wasn't intimidating. Anyone other than Bob Dylan would have taken one look at dear Mrs Roosevelt and deemed it wholly inappropriate for a gathering of the faithful, with every member of the audience keen to hear their fallen comrades' familiar anthems of solidarity and struggle. Perversely, yet characteristically, Dylan looked to rework arguably Woody Guthrie's least known song. The result was a triumph, twice! On the 20th of January 1968, Dear Mrs Roosevelt sounded magnificent, and half a century later, it still does. The same might be said of all three songs, and, judging by the audience response on the box set CD, everyone out front at Carnegie Hall thought the same, including a disillusioned, quietly desperate Phil Oakes. Dylan and the Crackers constituted an alien presence, but also a welcome arrival for all but a minority, namely Pete Seeger and a few other purists. There is a fine line between worthy and saccharine, and more than one artist veered perilously close to stepping over. Seeger certainly did, as was even more obvious at the Hollywood Bowl, where sadly he was joined by Joan Byers. The harshest critic would see the sincerity and eagerness to inform of a Pete Seeger, a Will Gear, or even a Robert Ryan as the equivalent of a well-intentioned uncle eager to educate mildly truculent teenagers. Again, this was especially evident in LA. The most respectful performances sucked the soul out of Guthrie's songs. Until, in New York, the final set before the interval. Woody Guthrie was not the nicest of individuals and, as Oakes discovered again and again, Bob Dylan doesn't take prisoners. One mean man inspired by another mean man and doing so in the company of a hard-rocking bar band. It's no wonder Dylan and his sidemen were greeted with surprise, delight and, above all, relief. <laughs>